I'll be reading from the ESV. And the Lord answered me, write the vision, make it plain on tablets, so he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end, it will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come, it will not delay. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. Moreover, wine is a traitor, an arrogant man who is never at rest. His greed is as wide as Sheol. Like death, he has never has enough. He gathers for himself all nations and collects as all his own people. Shall not these take up their taunt against him with scoffing and riddles for him and say, woe to him who heaps up what is not his own for how long and loads himself with pledges. Will not your debtors suddenly arise and those awake who will make you tremble? Then you will spoil, be spoiled for them. Because you have plundered many nations, all the remnant of the peoples shall plunder you for the blood of man and the violence to the earth, to the cities and to all who dwell in them. Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house to set his nest on high, to be safe from the reach of harm. You have devised shame for your house by cutting off many peoples. You have forfeited your life, for the stone will cry out from the wall and the beam from the woodwork respond. Woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. Behold, is it not from the Lord of hosts that the peoples labor merely for fire and the nations weary themselves for nothing? For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Woe to him who makes his neighbors drink. You pour out your wrath and make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. You will have your fill of shame instead of glory. Drink yourself and show your uncircumcision. The cup in the Lord's right hand will come around you and utter shame will come upon your glory. The violence done to Lebanon will overwhelm you, as will the destruction of the beasts that terrified them, for the blood of man and the violence to the earth and to the cities, all who dwell in them. What profit is an idol when its maker has shaped it, a metal image, a teacher of lies? For its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, awake, to a silent stone, arise. Can this teach? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, and there is no breath in it at all. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. The word of God. Thank you. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Mike and Cynthia, for serving our country at uh, great cost and for serving our church. We thank you. So he was giving me a hard time for making him read the oracles against the Babylonians. I'm like, you got the best voice uh, to read the oracles against the Babylonians. So thank you. So we find ourselves in the middle of a dialogue between the 7th century BC prophet Habakkuk and the Lord himself. And I think we can summarize it something like this. There's Habakkuk. God, what are you doing about all this? Are you seeing what I'm seeing? 
All this immorality in the land, I mean, so many have lost their way. How long will you do nothing? Come on, God. Which God says, Habakkuk, I am working. In fact, I'm working in a way that's astounding you insofar as I'm going to bring a godless nation, the Babylonians, to bring judgment upon my people and so shape my people to be more devoted followers of me. Well, God, you can't possibly do that. That's not what I had in mind. I mean, to use a godless people to shape your people? Well, what about judgment for them? Well, Lord, I know you're good, and I know you're sovereign, and I know you're holy. So I'm going to watch expectantly to see how this works out. That's where we enter this dialogue. And maybe you're somewhere in that dialogue yourself. Maybe you look around this world, you're like me, a little bit sad about this week's passing of this legislation. There are personal things in your life, all kinds of things. And you're like Habakkuk, say, God, how long? Are you there? Won't you do something? Others of you, maybe it's precisely these kinds of objections that keep you from faith in Jesus. Uh, that oftentimes you'll have somebody who say, well, I, I wish I could believe in Jesus and the God of the Bible. It's just something doesn't square up between this good, all-powerful God and the actual world that I occupy. What gives? And the point is, is that God's people actually, far from saying God is not in control, actually enter in to say God is working. He's working through his people, and our job is to ex expectantly watch to see how he's working it out and to see how his people are faithful in the midst of trial that others are one to a saving faith in Christ. And so the question becomes, if we can get a bit more granular about it today, say, well, in the meantime, this business of watching, 2 and verse 1, watching and waiting on the Lord, uh, can we give it a little bit more definition? Uh, what does that look like? And it comes down to our chapter today lends itself nicely to, to a contrast, a plain contrast between the natural default position of the fallen human heart as to how we conduct our affairs and what God actually wants. And it boils down to this matter of living by faith. So the first thing we'd like to see is that everyone, now whether you're a, a believer in God or not, but everyone exercises faith, the real question is whether or not there's a worthy object of that faith. You say, what do I mean by that? All of us, you know, people all over the globe, they get up in the, in the morning and they need some kind of vision that's pressing them forward. There is some kind of story, uh, some kind of promise that they're living for. Say, I believe this to be true. This is why I'm acting in this way. That it's impossible for a person to go through life in any kind of meaningful way without having a larger vision of, of the why, of, of the promise, of, of what we're striving for. And I bring this up because I think it's so important that I, I'll get into conversations all the time that go something like this. I'm not like you weirdos over at Providence Church who, you know, have faith. I mean, haven't we left faith, you know, back in the medieval times or something? You know, we, we're not people of faith. We're people of science. That we're empirical people and thoughtful people. And the last thing we need is faith in Jesus. To which I would respond to say, actually, most decisions of life that it's impossible to navigate even one day without what we would call faith or intuition. And the way that this settles down, I'll just kind of give three sub-points on this to think about, but one, on normal day-to-day -day activities, how faith, rather than, say, scientific method, are how we, uh, how we get through. For example, believe it or not, 
our denomination, a lot of Christian things are centered in Chicago. You say, well, Chicago's got a lot of tough things, but there's also a lot of Christians in Chicago. So I'm in Chicago a lot, and invariably I go and I get the Uber. Every time I've had an Uber in Chicago, the driver's been from a different country. Um, and at this point, you know, 20, 30 different countries, a little bit of English, I'm able to get out where they were born and what I'm doing there, maybe insofar as we can talk about the Lord. But, but you think about that, say, that's a real act of faith. That I'm there in Chicago, I don't know my way around, there are bad parts of town, that I'm putting my life in the hands of someone who I don't know, I can't even communicate with, and I expect them to drive me to the place that I'm supposed to be. Now, what would you call it? Say, well, I've, I've really boiled it down, I put it under the microscope, and I've come to this. To... No, what you're saying is that I, given the parameters, given the methods, given the things in faith, and I, or in, in place, I'm acting on, on faith. I, I'm assessing the reasonable evidence, and I'm acting on, on faith that this is going to end out the, the way that I want it to be. So even something like that, you say, that's not a decision, again, of empiricism as much as it is uh, a step of saying, I think this is, is the thing to do based on what I'm seeing. Secondly, little, little problem here, I think, for the materialist. You can try it out if you have atheistic friends. It's something, again, like this. Say, well, I'm not one of those people of faith. I'm a person of science. And what that scientist will believe, insofar as he's consistent in his materialism, is that his own brain, then, is a product of chance, right? Are you with me to say, well, we've all emerged uh, here that these highly sophisticated uh, specimens that we call homo sapiens, actually, they're just this kind of where we're at in this trajectory of evolution, that it's all happened by chance. Your brain is a result of, of random chance, a key fundamental of Darwinian theory, right? Random selection, brain's a product of random chance. In what sense, then, do you trust your own brain to accurately detect reality? And if you press into that a little bit more, you can say something like this. If a computer, if you knew a computer was randomly assembled, that there was no mind behind it, say no mind programming it, putting in the, the answers, would you trust that computer to generate the right answers? To which they'll say, well, of course not. And I said, well, how in the world, then, do you trust your own brain, the result of random chance, to accurately detect the world in which we observe? It's a real tricky problem. You see, the atheist materialism actually undermines his ability to do science. So what I'm submitting to you is that the very means by which we have of observing entails some kind of trust that our rational faculties detect things in a, in a way that's accurate. Thirdly, and I think most dangerously, it was well-established. When the Christian God is kicked out, fired, um, let's set up a godless society, whatever it is that fills that vacuum becomes the religion of that society. Now, this is a, a, a proven principle across millennia of civilization. Um, that in the French Revolution, right, famously say, God is out and reason is in. Reason becomes the God. Notre Dame, the, the famous church that recently had the fire, right? Notre Dame in the French Revolution becomes what? It becomes the temple of reason. That God is out, reason becomes the God, and we see how that ended uh, with the guillotine. Um, so this idea that, you know, you have these faith people who believe in weird things, and we're not faith people, we have this, but whatever it is you're filling that with becomes the God. Uh, th this week I listened to some historical analysis of Hitler's Mein Kampf. And uh, the non-Christian historian was talking about how if you read Mein Kampf, it's very religious. It is a combination of Norse mythology 
and uh, you know, German nationalism in such a way that the, the German nationalism takes on religious overtones. It becomes the God. Even the, the language that we use for these others, say, get rid of God, let's bring in social activism and um, you know, whatever kind of critical theory. If you listen to the critical theorists, they're very religious. That the things that people are supposed to do take on religious faith commitments. So let's dispel with any kind of short-sighted notions that there are weirdos in the church who practice this thing called faith, and everybody else is a neutral, objective observer of science who doesn't need that old stuff. No, what I would submit to you is that every person in this world has some kind of vision, some kind of anticipation of the future, what's driving them forward, that that vision is not so much susceptible to the scientific method, but rather is something based on reasonable evidence that any thoughtful person comes to by faith. The question then is whether or not that faith is going to the right place. The Babylonians then, if we turn to our passage in chapter 2, that this chapter is dominated by the judgment of the Babylonians. You remember Habakkuk is objecting, saying, well, I can't believe you're sending these godless people, the Babylonians. What about them? Will they be judged? And God says, well, I'll take care of them. And you get a series of woes. So take a look. Verse 6, woe to him. Verse 9, woe. Verse 12, woe. Verse 15, woe. Then down to 19, woe. Five times, it's something like this. God's just judgment rests upon people who are doing X. That's woe. Be very careful because the just reckoning of God lies upon, that is, uh, comes, will come forth on those who practice these types of things. And if I can distill, say there's a lot to go through here in the woes, which we won't have time for, but if we just look at one little clause in verse 18 of chapter 2 of Habakkuk, I think that this summarizes very well one way to live, uh, live our lives, and it's in this line in the context of idols, that the Babylonian trusts in his own creation. You notice the language there of faith. That the problem with the Babylonian is that he's trusting in what he is able to do. And all the other, I think, factors in the woes flow out of this notion of self-preoccupation and presumption. God, look at what I'm able to do. So, for example, we've seen that they put a lot of, they're pushing a lot of their chips in to their military accomplishments, that they're conquering more land, right? That they're saying, look at all this influence we're getting. We're moving into these areas and their weapons. So verse 16 of chapter 1, for example, their weapons and their military accomplishments, they're able to have more influence, we might say. This uh, becomes kind of like their God. And, and God, the Lord says, look out. Uh, you are banking on your own ability to take things over. That's not what pleases me. How about in building projects? And we see this too, right? Verses 9 and 12, that they come, they're sweeping across the ancient Near East, that they are erecting big building projects and say, God, not even God, say, this is our God. Look at what we're able to do. Look at the names of the top businessmen on the buildings of Babylon. Isn't that great? God says, be, be very careful. Many times, ancient world, and I think today, you get down a few layers deep, you say you have elements of extortion here to say taking advantage of the poor in order to do that, to wheel and deal, as we might say, in order to 
make a name for ourselves, God says, whoa. Verses 15 and 16, then, you say, well, what is this language about drinking and getting drunk? Now, this commentators are divided on. Uh, on the one hand, you say, some think that this is really the Babylonians are uh, inoculating their opponents uh, with alcohol and in so doing embarrass them, which uh, could certainly be the case. I think none of us in the room would say, well, drunkenness, you know, is a real virtue to say, look back at the times of our lives and say, well, I really regretted that. Oftentimes, too much alcohol can be a factor. And so are the Babylonians kind of, you know, so to speak, uh, whining and dining their opponents only to embarrass them? And God says, well, look out, you know, when you do that, look, because the, the real cup is coming to you. That is the cup of God's just judgment. On the other hand, this could be a metaphor simply for insincere diplomacy, uh, promising something that is fun, it's going to be great. You know, let's all party, only to say the Babylonians come in and in their cunning wipe out their opponents. And God says this kind of devil dealing, uh, this kind of uh, treatment of people, uh, that too. Look out. Verse 17 is interesting. Say, uh, sometimes people don't think, well, environmentalists and Christians can go together. Say, I wouldn't put it that way. But I also would say that every Christian is concerned about God's world to say we're stewards of all that God's entrusted to us. So the violence done to Lebanon will overwhelm you, Babylonians. The destruction of the beasts. In other words, they, they seemingly mistreated the animals. Say that that's going to come back upon the blood of man and the violence to the earth. So the Babylonians sweep down. They extort people. They're pointing to their building projects. They say, look at our weaponry. Look at what we're able to do. Say they're over-promising and under-delivering in a way that's kind of deceitful. They're plundering the earth. They're slaughtering the animals needlessly. And God says, woe to you, Babylonians. And the false gods, of course, idols. We've talked about this. This is verses 18 and 19. The idols say, well, we don't craft little things, but we certainly have idols in our hearts. Uh, the thing that I am motivated by rather than God. Is that what we're supposed to be doing? So this all forces this series of woes. You say, I always want to be more concerned about my own life than I am the Babylonians, but I have to ask myself, uh, do I take particular enjoyment in taking advantage of others? Maybe you wouldn't put it that way. Or, you know, in making a name for myself, we might say, or putting trust in what I'm able to create. Do I put my trust in questionable business practices? Am I the guy that's always scheming and tripping, tricking people? Um, a big one for us in our cult, right, is, is money absolute? I have to ask myself that question. Is, is, is money, the, you know, my bottom line? What, what will I do to, to uh, have success in that area. All of these point to the central theme across the woes, which again is self-preoccupation and presumption. You notice verse, two, or, uh, verse 4 of chapter 2, the soul of the Babylonian is puffed up. He thinks a lot of himself. He has faith in himself. God, look at what I've done. And again, friends, this is the default position of the human heart. And insofar as anybody thinks about it, say, well, you go to meet God, who's the just judge. And God says, well, you want to come into my kingdom. Uh, what, what merits your coming into my kingdom? Almost always, the default is something like this. God, I'm a pretty good person. Look at what I've done. Um, you know, I'm not like the other bad people and or worse people in my neighborhood. I've never cheated on my spouse. I, I'm a pretty good person. I've got a nice portfolio. I'm worthy. Look at what I've done. They're living by faith in themselves. You see, their trust in their own creation to put it all in self and not be reliant on God. 
This, friends, is why Babylon becomes a cipher uh, for godlessness. You know, if you say, well, you know, my sent my son off to Babylon, what that means, you don't send him off literally to the Middle East. What you're saying is I'm sending him off into this godless environment. That's what the Babylonians are. They're looking at themselves. So faith, everyone practices faith. They're acting on some kind of vision of the future, uh, depending on some kind of promise. And if that promise is, well, it's about my stuff and my enjoyment now at the cost of everybody else without a thought to God, you say, well, God's judgment comes upon that kind of disposition. Now, other way of looking at it comes in the form of a famous verse, Habakkuk 2, verse 4, the last little line there. So this is how the Babylonians live, Habakkuk 2, 4. But, but the righteous, righteous shall live by his faith. Now, we have to unpack that a bit. You see, the but is very crucial. So default position, look at what I've done. It's up to me. But... The one who's in right relationship with God lives by faith in him, by faith in his promise. Now, you say, kind of a silly game here, but if you said I, you, you had to pick like one little clause to explain to somebody, say, How, tell me what pleases God. You know, here we are, it's another Sunday in Avon. What are we supposed to be doing? How do we really, what, what are we supposed to be doing here? I think you'd do well to say something like Habakkuk 2.4, that God wants his people to live by faith in him. That it is, in many ways, the great text of the Bible. You know, if you read the book of Romans, oftentimes, you know, through the centuries now, say, well, how does this all work out? I mean, the whole Bible, what's it all? God's saving economy, what's it about? The thesis of the book of Romans, Paul gets from Habakkuk 2.4, right? In Romans 1.17, he says, what, what the framework of is how God's people come to him and live by faith. They receive him in faith and then act in the obedience of faith. So living by faith, crucial three words there, to live by faith includes both, as one commentator will say, the meaning of our life and the possibility of righteousness, so the possibility of a right relationship with our creator, flow from a commitment to God in faith and continuing faithfulness. So there's two components of living by faith, both coming to God on his terms by faith and then continuing forward in the obedience of faith. Again, this great truth is what we call the good news of the gospel. Say, so why has this come as good news that the righteous shall live by faith? Because again, if you're on the Babylonian schema, that this is about what I'm able to do, that that then becomes your position to how you relate with God. Uh, this is how I get right with God, by doing a lot of good works. And there are a number of problems, as all the other world religions do, of thinking of a self-centered approach to a right relationship with God. Just think about these this week. And, and it's, it's tremendously liberating when our minds are corrected from the works-oriented mentality. But first, if I think that I get right with God by being a good person... That's, that's what I say in the courtroom of God, because I'm, I'm a pretty good guy, that I immediately will feel a sense of enslavement if I believe that, because it goes something like this. How do I know when the good things outweigh the bad things in my life? So I've interacted with a number of you today. I've been tried to be kind, mostly, uh, but then if I get upset... 
how many demerits does that cost? So you kind of picture your whole life on this scales, right? You say, well, I think that was a good thing, so I put a chip on this side of the scale, but then, uh, oh, oh gosh, that wasn't my best moment, and then either you remove one here or put one on here. And the question becomes in this grand thing of good and bad, not to even mention who gets to define the good and bad, is that you'll be constantly enslaved saying, I don't know if I've done enough. And far from being liberated in your relationship with the Lord, you'll actually be enslaved and, and paranoid to say, I, I can't operate like this. So a works-based, a, a man-centered view of how we get right with God inevitably will enslave. Secondly, and very scary, I think, for people insofar as they think about it, if I have a self-centered approach to getting right with God, look at what I'm able to do, I've been good I've been really nice to other people. I've, I've done a lot of good deeds, say. In what way do my good deeds actually remove the bad things on my record? Now, that's a very sad thing. Because I think most of us in the room have things that we've done that if other people in the room knew, we'd be very embarrassed about. There's things that we'll you know, kind of take to the grave with us, but we know that they're there. Things that maybe you say, well, I don't think about them often, but I know they're true. So you made fun of the girl back in middle school, completely demoralized her, ruined her entire sixth grade. And you say, well, since then, I've been a good guy. I mean, I hold the doors. I've got good church attendance. In what way does any kind of good deed in 2023 erase the cruel thing that you did in the year 1995? It makes no sense whatsoever. And if we embrace this kind of thing, it's quite terrifying. I have no means. I have no means to erase the things on my record. That's what I did. I did that. I was cruel. I cheated, I swindled, and no amount of a self-centered approach gets me right with God. Third point about this, a man-centered approach, a Babylonian-centered approach to living in this world, is that there's nothing about a, the self-approach that actually will, A, convict me of my sin that the reason a person becomes a Christian is this great realization of, oh my goodness, I'm part of the problem, not part of the solution. That the, the, what is inside of me actually isn't all that righteous. And I need help from the outside. And so if you don't uh, have this view that God has acted from the outside, but rather it's about your own, uh, you know, what you're able to... Actually, the sinner is never humbled. You never have this moment to say, actually, I need help. And I need help from Jesus. And there's no power then to transform life from the inside out. Again, it's just behavior modification. It's just do more. Whereas you can see, I hope, the righteous coming to God by faith is a great news of good proclamation. That God, instead of looking at my own portfolio, sent his son into the world to die a brutal death so that I might see actually that's the just judgment. We all saying, well, God, when are you going to judge until we look into our own hearts, say, I need that just judgment. And we see that God's just judgment was poured out on Christ. And I can say, I can believe in Jesus. I can receive Jesus. And in so doing that I don't become enslaved then to my own works because it's all of him and none of me, that I then find out that by the blood of Christ that my record is cleansed. Thanks be to God. What freedom that I get the gift of the Holy Spirit which empowers me to life transformation and real repentance, and that is what the Bible calls real faith. 
to receive God. And some object. They say, well, if it's that, then, then why would any Christian be a good person? Well, once again, because we've actually received Jesus and the Holy Spirit, we can't help but live out that gospel truth by loving our neighbors. So friends, that's what it means. The Babylonians again, what's this life about? Make a name for yourself. Point to your accomplishments. Plunder others. Do what feels good. That's the best you can do. That's a position of faith. That's the best life to live. Or you can say, God, I see the great damage of thinking that way. Thank you for removing the blinkers from my life. To see, far from being a great guy, I needed saved. And you sent Jesus for me. And I receive him by faith and I come to you. And then the second part is living by that obedience of faith. We'd say faithfulness. In light of receiving Jesus by faith, we live in faithfulness. The righteous shall live by faith. How does our congregation live by faith? Can I make a few suggestions? One, we could actually read our Bibles. You know, I think it's now been over a decade where GQ magazine did some kind of article on books that you don't need anymore. Of course, first on the list was the Bible. You don't need the Bible anymore. Um, you know, we've got self-help books, and that's outdated. You certainly don't need all, you know, books like Habakkuk. Well, what if God's people actually, if it means, if living by faith means trusting in God's word, what if we actually really read God's word? What if we actually dared when we're in the Panera or the Starbucks to take a physical copy and set it there and not our phones? Oh, what's, the, you know, what's that guy reading, the BBC? Or no, he looks like he's reading something different. Oh, Habakkuk. What do you think about that? Living by faith. Trusting God's word, that this is our lifeline. Are we going to be that kind of church? How about our language? I'm always struck. Some, some say, well, how do you, you know, I mean, this whole Christian thing, how, how are we actually different? The importance of language? A few, maybe 10 days ago, Mallory and I were at an event. I was with a Christian friend, and another guy came up, and, uh, you know, my friend looks at him and says, we know each other, don't we? And he said, yeah, it's been 10 years. And I said, well, how'd you fellas meet? And this executive from UH, uh, my friend said, well, actually, this gentleman was giving a, a, a lecture on some kind of scientific innovation. It had nothing to do with faith. It was down at Case or something. He says, I was in that lecture, and I remember hearing you lecture and saying, this guy must be a Christian because of how he spoke, the tenderness of his heart, even on a scientific matter. said, after that, we got coffee. That was 10 years ago. In other words, my, my friend who's a pastor could detect a Christian businessman scientist in a scientific lecture by his disposition and by his tender heart. You say, God, how do we live by faith? That in my interactions, I'm not thinking, well, how do I prove myself to this person, but rather, how can I serve this person? How can I bless this person? How can I use my speech in a way that honors you? Because I'm going to live by faith in you, not in myself. Thirdly, sexual ethics. Oh, you're 29 and still a virgin. You're really missing out. I don't know how you live. How in the world do you, don't you know you haven't really lived? Go out, come on, do what feels good. No, I live by faith in God's word. How about in your marriage? Husband put on a few pounds, your wife put on a few pounds, a little bit bored, 
We know the world's voice. It doesn't matter. Nobody cares. You can hide it. Have fun. To the voice of the Lord, stay faithful to the commitments that you have. Obey God's word. You get the idea. How about in giving? I can think of no more, you know, again, a great example. What does it mean for us to live by faith? Surely don't give to your church. I mean, don't you want that new kitchen and that new bathroom? And in fact, when you go on your vacation, you get a nice upgrade in your room. Don't give to the church. Oh, by faith, I'm investing in that which cannot be taken away investing in God's work because it is by means of the local church that the Great Commission is fulfilled. So friends, the church has a choice, right? We have a choice. I can be a Babylonian insofar as that's not a slur. It's the default position of my own heart to make a name for myself, to say, look at what I've done and put all your chips in that kind of vision. Or you can say, I'm going to live by faith in God's word, which is a totally different thing but the righteous shall live by faith. It's a contrast to say, yeah, it's weird for the non-believer to say, well, why wouldn't you live this way? Say, no, I'm going to live by faith in God's word. That's what we're called to. And then lastly, kind of a summary of this from verse 14 of chapter 2. In the midst of these oracles, verse 14, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. You notice how this plays out. Back to the beginning of the chapter, God tells Habakkuk, he says, you're going to write this down. You're going to etch it on tablets. And in God's mind, say, one day in 2023, yeah, November, there's this little place called Providence Church that really needs this book. So you write this down, Habakkuk. He says, I got it. And it's going to seem like I'm not working, but it's going to happen. Verse 14, the whole earth will be filled with the glory of God. Do you believe that today? Do you actually believe that today? That you look around and say, well, that's nice talk. Or, sadly, have you been in a church where the pastor never had the courage to say, there's actually going to be a reckoning for how we live. There's actually going to be a day where every person in this room, and in fact, every person you meet this week, both on your schedule and not on your schedule, and all the people out there driving on the... There's going to be a day where we stand before our maker, and he says, what's it going to be? And we've got the Babylonian answer. I made some good stuff, and I accumulated a lot of nice things, and I had a lot of influence over other people. Or, it's 2 in verse 4. God, I'm an unworthy sinner who's self-interested. But by your grace, I came to faith in Jesus. I saw in Jesus what I couldn't do in myself. And I received him. Thank you. And it's by the merits of Jesus alone that I'm at all worthy to even be here. Two ways. There'll be a reckoning. So friends, you look out at the world as I do. You're saddened even in your own midst. Be confident of this. Habakkuk chapter 2. Sin will be judged in the church and outside the church. And God will receive glory from those who are his and even from those who are not his will acknowledge him as the king. But the Lord Jesus came into the world to absorb the just judgment of God so that all those who come to him by faith can have everlasting life 
and can have a great mission here and now. So I'll pray that men will go up and we'll take the Lord's Supper here in a moment. Loving and gracious Father, we thank you for the clarity of your word that 2,700 years ago that you tell Habakkuk, write this down. Make sure it's preserved for my people so as they read it, they would be confident that the sin problem is dealt with and will be dealt with definitively, that I will receive the glory and that all those who hear this word can repent of their sins and come to Jesus and join in my people. And Lord, I pray that in this world that so loudly shouts the Babylonian view, make a name for yourself, do what feels good, it doesn't matter, there is no reckoning. That as we hear echoes of that story to say that is not a good story, that the better story is to be convicted of our sin, to see our moral bankruptcy, uh, to see the goodness of Jesus, that we would be humbled, that he would be exalted, and that every person that we care about, and even those who we don't know, would come to a real faith in him, the obedience of faith. So Lord, we surrender this to you. Help us to think about it this week and always, for Jesus' sake. Amen.